Hey, hey, beer fans. Welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn. And I'm Drew Beecham. Together, we're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Mad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, and the forthcoming Simple Homebrewing from Brewers Publications. And by the way, today, the day this episode drops, May 8th, is the very last day that you can take advantage of the AHA members' pre-sale. If you go to experimentalbrew.com slash simple, you'll be able to save 30% and get free shipping. So listen to this podcast and immediately open up your phone and go, oh my God, I got to go to experimentalbrew.com slash simple. <laughs> That's right. Do it right now. Do it right now. All right. Now that you're done that, between the two of us, we have nearly 40 years of homebrewing experience. I'm the guy known for weird beer and strange ideas. And I'm the guy who's known for questioning the conventional wisdom and checking it out. And on today's episode, well, time for something slightly different, because Denny's not here. I mean, it sounds like he's here, right? That's right. You'd think I was here, but I'm not here. I'm in Belgium. Yeah, so we're going to revisit three of our favorite segments from the the whole run of this show and give uh, give you a chance to revisit some of the things that we've talked about, and we'll give you some commentary around the things that we've talked about, just to tell you what we think is, well... Where our thoughts have changed. But before we do all that, how about a message from our sponsors? We're going to be right back. This episode is brought to you by Pico Brew, makers of the Zymatic and Pico Brewing Systems. The brewing systems of the future are here now. Discover how easy and rewarding it is to make great beer with Pico Brew, and by Craftmeister and BTF Iota 4. When you absolutely, positively need to make every surface clean, bust out the cleaners with professional power and home brewer safety. Make better beer with better chemistry. Choose Craftmeister. This episode is brought to you by the American Homebrewers Association, who invites you to attend HomebrewCon this June 27th to June 29th in Providence, Rhode Island. HomebrewCon brings 3,000 homebrewers together for three days of brewing, seminars, nighttime events, and camaraderie. HomebrewCon is also the leading showcase of brewing supplies and equipment. Visit homebrewcon.org to learn more. And by you, our listeners, go to experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you'd like to help support us and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to BYO. Or click on the HA link to join the American Homebrewers Association and receive a subscription to Zymergy Magazine. Part of the proceeds from those go to help support the podcast. Thanks for your support. We're back. If you see any of our sponsors, if you buy anything from them, please let them know that you heard about them here on Experimental Brewing. And just in case you didn't catch it already, we dropped episode 61 of the Brew Files last week. Go check it out. Every Wednesday here at Experimental Brew, you can always find a new episode. And of course, not only can you find a new episode here at Experimental Brew, but next month, June 26, is going to be the kickoff party that we're throwing at HomebrewCon in Providence, Rhode Island, and we're going to be teaming up with our good friends at Country Malt Group to go to Isle Brewers Group and, well, have a chance to party down before the party actually gets started. So we're going to have free shuttle buses and just all sorts of goodies, giveaways. Uh, there'll be beers to try. There'll be just, well, it'll be good times, and it'll be Denny and I as, as hosts. So come join us. Keep us company. We promise not to be too weird. 
<laughs> yeah, well, we'll try, but, you know, we can't promise anything. We also want to remind you about Yakima Chief Hop and Brew School over Labor Day weekend, starting August 30th and running through September 2nd up in Yakima, Washington. Not only is it a great educational experience and a whole lot of fun and partying, but it also coincides with the 100th episode of this podcast. So we're going to be there recording a podcast, putting on a party, helping or actually helping put on a party. So please try and make it. It's going to be a great time. You will learn more about hops than you ever knew that there was to learn. Yep. 100th episode of the of this podcast. Now, by the way, that doesn't include the Brew Files episodes. So just 100 episodes of the main show. Kind of terrifying. <laughs> yeah, very much so. And don't forget that you can support the podcast so that we can keep going for another 100 episodes. By leaving us a review in Apple Podcasts, you can click the AHA, BrewSwag.com, code word experimental, Amazon, Brewers, Friends, or BYO links on the website, and by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is... It is Wings of Rescue, a great all-volunteer 501c3 organization that takes animals from shelters where they're going to be euthanized and flies them to no-kill shelters. It's our favorite kind of thing, people. So please help us help them. Go to experimentalbrew.com, click on the Patreon link, and give us a couple bucks that we can give to them. Yeah, I think they just uh, flew a load of dogs up from Louisiana to like Michigan or somewhere in the Midwest. To get them oh, adopted. How cool. How cool. Yeah. yeah, so definitely support them. And now it's time for us to take a break so that we can get you into a couple of segments that, well, we're having fun revisiting. That's right. Stick around, and it's going to be forward into the past when we come back. Getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing. The Pro Series Hydrometers from Brewing America will help you help your beer. These American-made NIST traceable hydrometers are accurate, easy to read, and the kits come with a cleaning brush and cloth and a borosilicate test flask that uses half the sample size of most flasks. That means less beer for testing and more beer for you. Brewing America is a small, family-owned business of husband and wife veterans, so when you buy a Brewing America hydrometer, you're not only getting a great piece of equipment, you're supporting the people who support America. Brewing America hydrometers are available on Amazon or at www.brewingamerica.com. Mecca Grade Estate Malt is a craft malt house owned and operated by the Klon family on their beautiful Central Oregon high desert farm. Their eighth generation Oregon farming family grows and malts all of their own specialty grain creating malts that are rare, remarkable, and bursting with flavor. Malt is the foundation of your beer, so why settle? The best beers deserve MechaGrade. For more information, please visit MechaGrade.com. Well, I think it comes as no secret that the most controversial thing that's happened since we started this podcast was the rise of the New England Hazy IPA. And, well, you know, 
I think there was a lot of wailing, a lot of gnashing of teeth, and a lot of people going, you know what, this style will never last, it's going to go away, it's a, it's a fad. And while Hazy IPA definitely seems to be slowing down from its meteoric rise, it sure as heck doesn't seem to be going anywhere. So <laughs> yeah, what we're actually if you, if, you, if you ask Gordon Strong about that, you would get a much different answer. Well, yes, but that's the reason why it's the beer world. So... This episode that we're this clip that we're actually going into is actually all the way back from episode fifteen. Episode fifteen. Remember, this is episode ninety-two. So this was a while back in our history, and this was, I think, really kind of our first real encounter of sitting down and actually trying to suss out what was going on with New England IPA. What's the cause of the haze? At the time that this was uh, that we broadcast this episode, there was a lot of people who were talking about, oh, you know, people add flour to their beer. It's a starch haze. It's yeast particles. It's this, that. It's the other. So what's happening in this clip from episode 15 is a listener, Jason Failer, he actually sent us in samples of two of his homebrewed IPAs, and he had actually done a split. He did a split of 1056 versus 1318. You know, so... Uh, Chico versus London 3. And of course, uh, London 3 is very popular for a lot of hazy IPAs. And at the time, a lot of the question revolved around, is it the yeast strain or something else? And I think it's safe to say that these days, we kind of know that it really appears to be a synergistic effect. Both a yeast strain choice, as well as the methodology that you're using for adding hop character into the beer. So... I think this was, it's kind of interesting to look back at what we were talking about in here and what we know now, but also to see, you know, kind of our attitudes. Cause I think when this episode first appeared, we were both very heavily, uh, you know, grumbly, grumbly about New England IPA. Uh, I know it's safe to say that my attitude on the style has changed, even though I think there are a lot of very badly executed New England IPAs out there. And there are a lot of New England IPAs that end up tasting the same. And the only reason you know they're any different is because it's a different name and a different label on the can. Uh, but I do have to admit there have been quite a few really well-brewed New England IPAs that I like. Still not my first choice of a pint, but I can respect what's going on with the style. How about you, Denny? Yeah, I don't like them any better than I ever have, but uh, I've come to understand them a bit more. And, uh, you know, I've also grown, so I, I'm not stunned by people who like them you know it's my attitude has pretty much come around to if you like it drink it don't make me drink it if i don't like it so sit back get ready we're going to set the wayback machine all the way to the wilds of 2016 and talk a little bit about a newfangled style called new england ipa We're sitting here in the lab, and it's time to talk about Northeast IPAs, a style that has uh, turned up in the last few years and seems to be getting more and more popular, characterized mainly by a, a very soft hop presence, but a very uh, forward hop presence, and a lot of haze. And there are a lot of people uh, with opinions on both sides of this, and believe it or not, we have opinions too, huh? Yeah, I was going to say, it's not like you have uh, not put up a whole article about your opinions and tasting. Right. And uh, just as a point of clarification, so you're saying Northeast IPA. I've always heard New England IPA. And I don't know, is it are they synonymous or are we just you know talking past each other? Or 
what's going I, on there. As I'm, I am using them interchangeably, to tell you the truth. So, uh, you know, if somebody else calls it something different, uh, yeah, I, I'm talking about the same beer, even though I give it a different name. So, sure. you know, when I see NE, I think Northeast, maybe it's New England. Uh, does it really matter? No, except for, you know, apparently people love their nomenclature and, you know, want precise terms like juicy to be defined. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay. In that case, I mean, you know, I'll go, I'll go with New England if that's the accepted nomenclature. All right. So first thing, first thing here, uh, that really you notice about these beers, uh, is the appearance of them. And there's a lot of different ideas about what causes that hazy appearance. Some people say it's the yeast. Some people say it's the huge amount of hops that are put into it. Some people say it's large additions of uh, chlorides that they use to get the soft flavor. Um, but uh, there's a Beer Advocate article that talked about one of their findings, right? Yeah. So, all right, let's first get it out of the way here. That the New England IPA is characterized by these sort of more moderate IPA gravities. A lot of hop flavor, but not as much on the hop bitterness. So the IBU levels are a little different uh, and uh, tend to be a lot of adjuncts. And the, yeah, they tend to be hazy. And sometimes the haze is all the way from uh, not very much haze to holy crap, who poured a glass of gravy into my glass? <laughs> yeah, right. And so the speculation is a lot of people are saying, oh, you know, yeah, it's hops. It's a yeast interaction with the hop oils. It's this, it's that, it's the other. And then, of course, there are also a lot of people out there who are just like, uh, it's because brewers are being, you know, plain lazy. You know, whatever happened to the idea of filtration and cold crashing, la, 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 la. A lot of Gerard uh, type of sentiment. So, yeah, uh, on Beer Advocate, there was one user who went and broke out his trusty microscope because beer requires microscopes uh, and did a couple of uh, analysis, put, uh, put a couple of uh, beers under uh, under the glass and went and take a, uh, took a look. And the first one was uh, uh, Conky Dong. Uh, God, I can't even remember where that's from. I think that's uh, Hoof Hearted, uh, Hoof Hearted uh. Brewing. And he also did Green, uh, which is one of the ones that you tasted. Right. And uh, the uh, the Dong had a fair amount of both yeast and hot particles in the beer uh, under the scope. And you can totally see this. And this is from uh, uh, DJ Unk from Minnesota on uh, Beer Advocate. And you can see in the in the Dong a lot of yeast and a lot of hot particles. Now, the green, on the other hand, which I think you saw in your article, you know, is a fairly hazy beer. Uh, mm -hmm. With sort of a very sticky, uh, sticky sort of uh, mouthfeel, um, very little yeast, mostly hop particles. So uh, that was kind of a nifty to see. So it may be that what we're seeing here is a wide range of causes, and maybe some of it does come down to the idea that some of these beers are just plain unsettled yeast. But there might also be something that's going on with the hops. Yeah, I, I don't think I don't think you can. Uh rack it up to any one particular thing. I think that uh, every brewery has their own way of going about it. So I, I don't think you can necessarily say that it's the yeast in all of them that makes them hazy. Uh, I think that it's uh, simply a case of there are a number of things that it could be, and uh, it could very well be different from brewery to brewery. It could be even a combination of things. Yeah, I was going to say, I think uh, you're going to have a fair amount of uh, synergistic effects. To use right. a big word. 
So let's, you know, let's just briefly here talk about maybe like the historical differences between uh, East Coast and West Coast IPA. Uh, basically, East Coast IPA has always been pretty much heavily influenced by the uh, British style of IPA. It tends to be a little bit less hoppy, a little bit less bitter, uh, a little bit more malt forward. Uh, that's because a lot of the original brewing systems in New England uh, came from Alan Pugsley, who brought them over from Britain, or at least styled them on British systems and set them up and uh, brought over uh, yeast strains from Britain that uh, that would make the same style of beers. When Anchor uh, started uh, kicking off the American style of IPA with uh, with their Liberty, they went for uh, more of, of a of a clean, dry yeast, which is what they had been using already, and they started loading it up with uh, the then new Cascade hops, and so we we kind of transitioned from the um, kind of uh, malty, earthy style of British IPA to the drier, fruitier style of uh, American IPA in the West. Is you think that's a, a reasonably good assessment? Uh, yes and no. I mean, I mean, yeah, there was in the earlier days, there were a lot more kind of caramel forward type uh, American IPAs that you find on the on the East Coast. I'm, I hesitate to say that they're really British influenced because they're sort of modern British IPA influence. But if you look at like the old school original IPAs, the old school original IPAs, at least that uh, Ron Pattinson and company have dug up the recipes for are almost West Coast in nature in terms of, you know, basically pale malt and hops. Without much, uh, without much else going on, um, so right. yeah, I mean, oh yeah, Does, they're, they're kind of, kind of very similar to like McEwen's uh, McEwen's IPA with more hops and more alcohol uh, was a, for a long time the perception of East Coast IPAs, uh, but of course naturally as the West Coast IPA thing kind of took hold, you know a lot of people oh East Coast IPAs aren't bitter enough blah 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 blah. And then finally, we started to get people to do analysis, and I don't know whether the breweries had shifted or whatnot, but it turns out that now a lot of those East Coast IPAs were just as bitter. They may have just uh, had a slightly different malt bill tweaking to them that, that gave less appearance of hops and less appearance of bitterness. So, right, right. And that's, yeah. and that's the traditional view. And now what we're seeing is the, the transition that's happened over time where you know, the West Coast style has become very dominant, where now everybody's like, you know, Strip all the malt out of there. No malt whatsoever. You know, as little flavor as possible from grain. All hop all the time. You know, big, bright bitterness and dankness is a, a prized attribute, etc., etc. Well, it seems like to me that these New England IPAs are very much a reaction to some of that. Where right. people, people have already been scaling back the number of IBUs that they've been putting in these beers. You know, trying to play with how do I extract more hop oils? How do I get more flavor? And this just seems to be taking that to the logical extreme of, okay, now that I've got all these really uh, sort of tropical, fruity, uh, very interesting, uh, very, very oil-rich hops that are coming out here, all the new ones, the citras and the mosaics and the galaxies and all those, uh, how can I best express those and get as much of their flavor without necessarily getting all the bitterness that, that you would normally get? And so you start to see people playing around with like late hop additions and much heavier late hop additions. I just had a beer yesterday where there was zero hops in the kettle, 
Uh, they first word hopped it, and then everything else went into the Whirlpool. And it was a, a very nice IPA. Uh, mm. So seeing that, and this just seems to be like, okay, great. Now what can we do to even further strip that out? And part of it seems to be the chloride thing. So normally when we talk about chloride versus sulfate, you know, sulfate, uh, people always will put out there, oh, well, that accentuates the hop character. It increases the bite uh, of the hops. Chloride increases the perception of malt. So what people are now aiming for is instead with these New England IPAs is instead of going sulfate heavy like they have in the past with their IPAs, trying to push the ratios to one to one. So one to one chloride to sulfate. And the idea is kind of round off that bite that you get from the hops so you can put more hops in there so you can get even more hop oils so you can make the beer juicy. And let's let's make it clear right now that uh, the style is far from monolithic. Uh when I when I put up my review of ten uh, New England style IPAs that uh, were kindly sent to me, uh, I found that uh, you saw about half of them that were the stereotypical New England IPA with a lot of haze, a real thick mouthfeel, soft hop presence, but a number of the other of them were very much like uh, like West Coast IPAs. Uh, crystal clear, a real bite to the hops and stuff like that. So just keep in mind that not all breweries in New England uh, make only the the new hazy style of, of IPA. And one thing that goes along with hazy is the descriptor that uh, that is being used for a lot of these beers, which is juicy. Uh, I have to admit that that baffled me for a while and... Uh, Interestingly enough, I've gotten some comments online from people saying, well, you idiot, can't you understand what juicy is? It's like, well, you know, in relation to a beer, no, I I really can't. Although after going through and tasting 10 of these, I think that what I I think that I understand what they're getting at. Uh, These beers have a very thick mouthfeel. There is a lot of particulate matter in the beers and uh, the hop varieties used are extremely fruity. So it finally dawned on me that maybe I need to think of the descriptor juicy as uh, relating to like, say, orange juice or something like that. So uh, I, I do now have an idea what juicy is. And uh, to all of you who have been giving me crap about my reviews, let me just say, those are my subjective opinions, people. Opinions are neither right nor wrong. They are simply opinions, and you are welcome to your own. So, neener, neener. Well, I was going to say, yeah, there, there were definitely uh, some people who were giving you crap online about it, and I have to admit, I thought it was fun. <laughs> yeah, well, I For- didn't think it was so much fun because I find it I find it weird that people get so defensive about somebody else's opinion about a beer, you know, but hey, you know, that's me, that's my opinion once again. Well, it's the internet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is it, it is the internet and I guess I should know better and be prepared for that. So, as we said that there are a number of uh, possible causes of the of the haze in the beer that uh, that gives these beers a, a lot of their mouth feel. Uh, there, you know, like we said, that it could be yeast in suspension. It could be hot particles in suspension. Could be a high use of chloride. It could be uh, adjunct grains like uh, barley or oats. Uh, so 
what we are going to do is kind of take a look at some of the things that could possibly be contributing to this haze uh, and keeping in mind that it could very likely be no single thing, we're going to try and look at the various factors and uh, what what they might bring to that style of beer. And to that end, Drew has come up with a recipe we're going to be using to experiment with. Yeah, so in a little bit here, we're going to do a tasting uh, from a, a fellow on the internet called uh, named Jason Failer, uh, who sent us a couple of uh, beers that are actually right in line with our first experiment. The very first New England IPA experiment that we're going to do, and this will probably end up being a series, which is why I keep saying the first, is we're going to play around with the yeast. Uh, since everybody seems to think that there's a big yeast component to this uh, style and whether or not this actually works, uh, we're, we're going to take and ferment this one recipe with Y-Yeast 1056 and Y-Yeast 1318, which is one of the rumored strains that is used by uh, the folks behind uh, Hetty Topper, which is really the first of these New England IPAs that got a lot of attention from folks. And so, <clears throat> you know, you also sometimes will hear people talk about a Conan strain, uh, Conan coming directly out of the, the cans from uh, uh, Hetty Topper. And, you know, it, but we wanted to play around with 1318 because that's more commonly available and uh, it's something that we can reach out and really play with. And it does have a rumored, uh, rumored lineage to these beers. So anyway, we're going to do our, we're going to do our first one. So we're going to be using a recipe that I call Israel Bissell I-B-N-E-I-P-A. Uh, <laughs> all right. Okay. Now that, that's going to take more explanation than my Darth Vader beer name. All right. Well, so my family name, uh, you know, you, you all know me as Drew Beecham, but my, on my maternal side, the family name is Bissell. And uh, there's a point of contention in the Bissell family, which is about Israel Bissell and Paul Revere. Uh, everybody knows Paul Revere went and warned everybody that the British were coming, the British were coming. But what a lot of people forget is that even though Paul Revere had a great publicist who managed to get a poem out there that, uh, you know, years later <laughs> that made him super famous for his midnight ride. Uh, yeah. Paul Revere got arrested in Cambridge. He never made it very far. So he basically could have warned the president of Harvard college. Uh, <laughs> yeah. In the meanwhile, Israel Bissell received word that the British were coming and rode all the way from Waterford mass to Philadelphia in one straight shot, stopping along the way, switching out horses, warning everybody from Massachusetts to Philadelphia that the British were coming. The British were coming. Meanwhile, why didn't he? Why didn't he just take the train? <laughs> well, I mean, look, ticket prices back then were just insane, and oh, the yeah, schedule was taken forever. Right. Um, but no. So seriously, point of contention in my family is uh, Paul Revere gets all the fame for warning uh, Harvard College. Uh, my ancestor, on the other hand, gets nothing for making a six-day ride all the way down to Philadelphia. Those jerks, history. So here's my way of remembering him. <laughs> Okay. All right. And so just real quick, the recipe itself, it's going to be plain Jane and following all the parameters that we can, uh, that we can find for this sort of style. Like most of the stuff that people agree on has a heavy portion of flaked oats in it, uh, has a whole bunch of very, uh, oil, oil forward hops. So mostly uh, warrior for bittering centennial citra and emerald gold in various quantities at various times, including a fairly hefty dose in the dry hop stage. Uh, we're going to do the, Chloride, uh, chloride treatment, get everybody to go one-to-one -one and uh, really see what people get to do. And out of this first experiment, uh, the variable will be half of it will be fermented with Y-Yeast 1056. The other half will be fermented with Y-Yeast 1318. I'm looking forward I have to see a, what I people have a, think. I have a question here. Mm -hmm. By using uh, 
heavy chloride water treatments and adjuncts, are we not skewing the experiment and and testing for more than the yeast? Well, no, because what what I want to do is I want to say, okay, look, if I, I want to do this as a series, right? So is it just the yeast? Yeah, and so if we give it a New England IPA malt bill and hop bill and water build and just change out the yeast, do we see a change in the haze? If okay. we do, if we do another round and it's without the water, do we see a difference? And in another case, if we change up the hop bill, do we see a difference? So this will just be a series of steps where each time we do this, the recipe will change just slightly, but we'll still basically start as a base New England IPA. And then we can well, see which, which one has the, if any of them, if any single one of them has the major effect that we're expecting. Right. You know, I, I hate to admit it, but I think that maybe you're right. Yay! It happens. Yeah, right. So do we get to open these beers now and uh, see what's going on? Yeah, I think we ought to. So again, uh, Jason Failor, uh from BA, he sent us uh, a couple of beers. He's been doing triangle tests uh, all over the place with people. And I think you ran into somebody in Philadelphia that had this, right? Yeah, and I'm, you know, if you're listening out there, I'm sorry, I cannot remember your name, but it had been a long day at the Craft Brewers Conference. But yeah, as I was walking into my hotel in Philadelphia, going through the lobby, a gentleman came up to me and uh, said that uh, he had uh, received some beers from Jason also and held a blind tasting and everybody guessed every time which was which. So uh, pretty cool. So, okay, so here goes. Mm-hmm. It's always nice to hear bottles. Beer number A. Um, but oh yeah, my so God. J- well, in Jason's <laughs> Jason's recipe, he did the he did the basically the same thing that we're doing. Thirteen eighteen versus ten fifty six. He he made a malt bill and a hot bill that was, in his words, uh, more uh, more of a hybrid between a New England IPA and a West Coast IPA. So this isn't quite. I can in I can the smell category, the fruit, but, man. The glass is sitting two feet away from me, and I can smell the fruit in it. Mm-hmm. So, so now, so are, by, by the way, I do want I do want to point out to the listeners we are not doing a triangle test here, uh, mostly because uh, I have no way we have no way right now to coordinate our blinds. So we're, well, we're gonna have to, also in this particular case, there's really no reason to do a triangle test. We just want to see which beer is hazier, right? Mm-hmm. And so, uh, I would I, say uh, with without a doubt, the thirteen eighteen beer has a grayish haze to it and mm-hmm. the 1056 beer I would say is clear and just short of brilliant. Yeah, and and also very di- uh, very different in terms of color for for my thing uh where yeah, the 1318 is deeply hazy. The 1056 is clear but also comes off with that sort of uh copper sort of color as opposed to the sort of hazy lemon yellow. You know, and I'm I'm kind of baffled here, which I know you know is nothing new. Uh, but I have used thirteen eighteen in the past. It makes a great mild, um, and I have never noticed that haze before. Uh, that's very interesting. I wonder if there's something else going on. Well, I mean, again, there's the there's all the things that people are talking about where there's some sort of uh, bioreaction between uh, the yeast and the hops. In this particular case, uh, Jason's hop bill, like I said, was uh, very much sort of in that West Coast New England IPA area, and he didn't go for the super heavy oil hops like the Galaxies and the Mosaics. 
His was uh, a bittered with Columbus and then had a mix of Centennial, Citra, and Amarillo uh, mm-hmm. at both 15 minutes and at knockout. But he didn't do any Whirlpool editions. That Citra and Amarillo aroma is really coming out in this beer. So, Okay, so I guess it's time to taste. I'm going to start with the 1318 beer. Because mm-hmm. it looks so disgusting, I want to get it over with. <laughs> well, I mean, here's the thing. Uh, soft mouthfeel, definitely a okay. fair amount of bitterness. Um, yeah. uh, kind of a minerally th- aftertaste. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Okay. And there's now, a, I mean, a big, I mean, definitely big lots bright. of fruit in there. Holy cow, man. I can taste those citra. Yeah. I mean, and what's interesting to me though, is the citra in this case, I usually tend to think of citra as coming off very tropical fruit. So a lot of uh, mango and pineapple. And here, what I'm getting more is a sort of very bright, clean, orangey. And I'm wondering, I'm if getting a lot of a, orange, a, but I am definitely getting a lot of mango out of it too. You know, uh, that, see now I get, my, but I get more. I'm I'm also smelling and tasting the 1056 version. Mm-hmm. And with the 1056 version, I get more of uh, the pine aroma, but I also do get more of the mango. See, and for me, it's it's the other way around. I get much more mango out of the 1318. The aftertaste, especially for me, is pure mango. The 1056 beer is definitely. I want to say cleaner. That may not be the right word. It, it, it definitely is, is more straight ahead, and the hop flavors seem to be a little bit more focused. And I'm not saying that in a way to imply that focused is preferential. It's just a description. Whereas in the 1318 beer, the hop flavors are maybe more diffused and blended together. Does that make mm-hmm. any sense? Yeah. Hey, I I want all of you out there now to take note of that. Drew just said I made sense. Well, no, I I, I said what you said made sense. Not Uh, anything about your state. You know what they say Um, about blind squirrels. Yep. (laughs) Um, But no, so it is definitely interesting to me that, I mean, there is is a a major perceivable difference between these two uh, beyond just the visual. Mm-hmm. And I and to me, it's not even a, a perceivable dis- difference because of esters or something from the yeast. Yeah, you know, we no. are we are definitely getting a different hop presentation between these. Yeah, things. I would I would say that the yeast definitely had an effect on the hop character uh, mm-hmm. in these in these two beers, and that of the two of them, the beer with thirteen eighteen is a lot closer to the uh, to the beers I tried and wrote about. Mm-hmm. So. Okay. Now, now so, let me ask, let me ask. Do you have a do you have a overall preference between these two? Yeah, I prefer the ten fifty six beer. Okay. See, because, and and well, you you uh, like that clarity. You like that sort of bright bright hoppy thing. Uh, well, you know, and and as I keep trying to point out to people online who say, "Well, it's you old fogies who like clear beers," the the aesthetics of the clarity are a, a minor point to me. Sure, I like that, but you know. I, I have made and drunk lots of hazy beers in my time. What I oftentimes object to about the haziest ones is that there's almost a gritty kind of mouthfeel that comes with them mm-hmm. from the, the particles still in, in suspension. And I also feel that, like I said, the, the hop flavors in the, in the 1318 beer are more diffused and muted where I feel like the, 
hop flavors in the 1056 beer are are more focused and in your face. And well, you know, there's there's I, I, neither one, that's not meant to be a value judgment on either one. Mm-hmm. There there's room for both things in the world because people like different things. It would be boring if there was only one kind of beer. Mm-hmm. Well, and and what I what I'm noticing is the difference between the hop characters is the 1056 presents with a much more traditional you know, sort of hop bite, hop slap, you know, mm-hmm. right across the tongue. The 13, uh, 1318 version, I guess to your point about being muted, and I know some people took you to task for that, like, oh, God, you're insane. Um, the muting to me is, it's it's muted down the bite. It's muted down that sort of, you know, aggressive rasp that we tend to think of with IPA. Mm-hmm. Uh and instead is presenting a lot more of the the hop flavor, the, the hop oils. So I guess, you know, one other way to think of the muting is that what you're getting is an impact to that that bite from the hops and mm-hmm. not so much from the not so much from the oils. Although, like with the 1056, I, I get much more of that bitter orange peel flavor. You know, like those, yeah, big, right. those, those big oil uh, sort of almost numbing effects from... Uh, uh, orange pith. Boy, it's amazing too because I haven't uh, now had a sip of one of these beers for a few minutes and I still just have nothing but the flavor of mango in my mouth. Uh, so well, it's anyway, coming, it's, Jason, coming, it's coming out it's coming out as it's uh, as it's warming up in my glass. My my first one may have been too cold. Yeah, and I've had my bottles out for a while. So anyway, we want to thank Jason for uh going to the trouble of brewing these beers and sending them to us to try. And I think that, uh, you know, it's been a great learning experience and uh, a a great first step on our journey of figuring out uh, what goes into making a New England IPA, a New England IPA. Yeah, well, and I will also reiterate, uh, Denny and I are always happy to accept beer. We we will take beer (laughs) and we will do exactly this sort of thing. And in the future, if you want, if you want to have this sort of uh, interactive tasting happening online, uh, or you have a beer that you have questions about, uh, feel free to reach out to us. Uh, we're more than happy to uh, have your beer on the show, talk about it, uh, and uh, maybe also get you online so we can uh, talk to you about it and right. uh, help people figure out what's going on. Well, man, you know, in our defense, when those were new. There were a whole lot of people doing all kinds of weird things to make them hazy. And uh, I think as the style has matured more, it's become apparent that the best ones uh, are the ones that really just get that haze naturally from all the late hop additions, as mm-hmm. opposed to the people who are doing weird stuff trying to make them hazy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think we've moved away from the days when it's all like starchy beers. Now I think the problem comes in like people not understanding their water chemistry, or not understanding the impacts of the various hops that they're going to use. Uh, but it's really interesting. And of course it's had a big impact on the industry. I know like even for Y yeast, like there was one time when we were talking to Jenny and she had said that 1056 always used to be like their biggest seller. And ever since the new England thing started 1318 has begun, has gone meteoric. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So, um, you know, and, and again, these beers have really come around a lot. Um, I think that they are still a fad. I don't think they're going to fade away at, to the point that uh, Black IPA did. But, uh, you know, at this point, the BJCP is still calling them provisional, and there, there's no real category for them. Yeah, but the whole definition of a fad is something that goes away. So 
if it's not going away, not a fad. It's it's not going away yet. Let's give it some time and see what happens. It may, it may not. <laughs> no, I, and, and, yeah. anybody else get the sense that Denny's out in the brewery, you know, reciting uh, ancient incantations that are dark and, and dangerous. No, 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 man. If if they stick around because people like them, that's fine with me. Like I said, you know, I'll, I'll still not drink them. But, you know, I'm just going by what I see and what's happened with other fads in beer. Um, they they may stick around more than that. They may not. And we'll just have to wait and see what happens. Yep. All right. Well, hey, let's go take a break before we get into our next segment. All righty. We'll, we're going to do that. Stick around. We're going to be right back. When I'm done brewing, I want to be done brewing, not waiting around for my work to cool. With the Hydra, the Corny Pillar, and the other great chillers from Jaded, I can be done when I'm done. No more waiting 20 minutes for the work to cool enough to add Whirlpool hops. No more messing with cleaning and sanitizing counterflow or plate chillers. With the super fast immersion chillers from Jaded, you can chill your word in minutes without all the hassle. Jaded chillers aren't just works of art, they're the fastest, most effective chillers you can buy. Check them out at jadedbrewing.com. Yakima Chief Hops is a 100% grower-owned global hop supplier located in the Pacific Northwest with a mission to connect family hop farms to the world's finest brewers. Yakima Chief's cryo hops represent the most innovative technology in hop processing, using a patent-pending cryogenic separation process which preserves the components of each hop fraction. Cryo hops pellets provide intense hop flavor and aroma, reduced vegetal flavors, and increased yield. Available now to commercial and home brewers. Learn more at yakimachief.com. Are you having trouble finding enough time to homebrew and give attention to the other important things in your life? Is your newest brewed IPA experiment coming at the expense of other obligations? Don't neglect partner or pet. Brew with the Genesis Fermenter. Learn why at genesisfermenter.com and find them wherever Brewcraft USA products are sold. Well, three years ago, back in uh, September of 2016, I was up making one of my frequent visits to my family on Bainbridge Island and decided it was time to go check out a brewery there called Bainbridge Brewing. Uh, imagine That's that. Odd. Yeah, really. Uh, in the intervening time, they have opened a tap house in downtown Bainbridge, putting their own astounding beers on, uh, as well as some really nice ciders and meads and Last time I was up there, they had Rodenbach Grand Cru on tap. Man, that was uh, a real treat. That doesn't uh, suck. No. But, Russell, uh, besides making all these straight-ahead beers that are absolutely delicious, really likes to make weird beers that are really delicious, too. And we got 
so many uh, comments about his Cool Ranch Doritos beer that we decided it was time to revisit this episode. So uh, sit back, grab yourself a beer unless you're driving, and listen to me talking to Russell Everett of Bainbridge Brewing. To set this up, uh, Denny gets to go on the road a little bit because, well, you know, he's retired and doesn't have, you know, a job he has to go to. Uh, jerk. And went up to uh, Seattle to go uh, do a book signing and uh, visit uh, Pico Brew and do a whole bunch of fun things. But one of the one of the initial stops was over to Brainbridge Island, uh, which is uh, right near Seattle, and uh, got to go talk to a very cool little brewery out that way. Denny, you want to set up anything? Is your voice back? Yeah, yeah, I can talk now. Yeah, um, Bainbridge Island, gorgeous place, uh, and they have this very cool brewery there, uh, Bainbridge Brewing, uh, founded by a guy named Russell Everett, a uh, nice guy, and uh, turns out he's an amazing brewer also with some really cool ideas that you'll hear about. Uh, highly encourage you, if you go up there, stop by and uh, give them a visit. They make some outstanding beers, just outstanding. So uh, rather than listen to me try to describe it, how about if we just sit back and listen to the interview and let Russell speak for himself? There we go. Let's do it. Hey, everybody. This is Denny, and I'm sitting here at the Bainbridge Island Brewery with uh, founder and brewer Russell Everett. Hi, Russell. How are you today? Hey, doing great. So, um, you know, just to get things off to a good start, we always ask people what their favorite curse word is. (laughs) Uh, yeah. Actually, mine's a little bit weird, uh, and it's technically Australian, yeah. uh, but we say the word chunder a lot around here. Uh, are, you, are you Australian? No, but I don't know. Somewhere, some years ago, I latched onto that word, so like whenever you got like all the, you know, troop at the bottom of a kettle or whatever, like, chunder, you know, yeah. get that chunder out of there. Well, the reason I ask is back in the early 80s, I toured with an Australian New Zealand <laughs> band called Split Ends, and so I'm very familiar with the word chunder. Yeah, see, there we go. Have, have worshiping, worshiping the porcelain god. <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> yeah, as, right. As, as mentioned in uh, Land Down Under, I believe. And that's exactly right. And, <laughs> and I would let, I'll let you know, too, that obviously no one else has picked chunder I wouldn't so think far. so, yeah. And I'm not sure if it's actually a swear word, uh, per se. Say, well, if, if you use it as we one, use it a lot, and yeah, mostly like, oh god, look at that chunder. <laughs> cool. So, tell us a little bit about your background. When did you start brewing? Uh, yeah, my background. So, uh, in two thousand and one, uh, I was an undergraduate at the University of Washington, and my then girlfriend, now wife of eleven years, uh, made a terrible mistake. And she bought my college roommate and I a Mr. Beer Kit uh, because I wasn't 21 yet and they wouldn't sell it to me. Uh, but she was. And so we made, uh, we made our first batches of homebrew in the, this dingy little basement apartment in the U District. And it was awful beyond reason. Uh, it was really, really bad. Uh, it was bad enough that my, my, my roommate gave up. And never brewed again. Uh, oh, no. But about a year later, I uh, I was like, hey, what if I got some actual like knowledge and proper equipment <laughs> and uh, good ingredients? Yeah, so I popped over to uh, Bob's Homebrew out in the U District, uh-huh. and uh, Bob hooked me up. And uh, the first batch that came out of that was actually pretty darn good. And so I just started homebrewing then. So homebrewed all through undergrad, and uh, then in two thousand. 
five, I moved to Miami because my wife was uh, going to grad school down there. Mm-hmm. And uh, got involved with the local homebrew club. And through that, I got a job as assistant brewer at uh, the Titanic Brewery in, in Miami for a little while while the, uh, the brewer broke his leg and needed help. <laughs> nice, man. Uh, so I got to learn a little bit of uh, playing on the big boy toys down there. Um, and then I quit that. I went to law school and became a lawyer. And then I graduated law school in 2009 and there were no jobs. <laughs> and I was like, I got two skills. I can make beer or I can do law. Uh, and people are always going to drink. So cool. I started working on a business plan and uh, we opened the brewery in 2012. You know, you're the second lawyer I know who has become a brewer. Do you know Patrick Rue at the brewery? Uh, no, but there are others as are well. Are there really? Oh, yeah. We've talked about whether we should have a support group or something <laughs> like that. To get together for meetings. Uh, I would say that you'll probably get uh, a lot more popularity being a brewer than being a lawyer. Yeah, you get a totally different reaction. You walk up to someone like, hey, I'm Russell, I'm a lawyer. And they're like, "Uh, hey, I'm Russell, I'm a brewmaster. And they're like, hey, nice to meet you. Party time. Yeah, my new friend. So when did you discover good beer? What was the the first really good beer you remember? Um, Without in any way condoning uh, the underage consumption of, of alcohol, uh, of course. Uh, there's a photo of me downing a Budweiser at about three years old, I think, uh, <laughs> at a wedding somewhere in a little, in a little tuxedo. Um, yeah. And uh, so, I mean, I grew up um, here on Bainbridge Island and, you know, in the Seattle area. And uh, I think having decent craft beer around is almost like a birthright now for <laughs> us up right. here uh, in a way that it isn't for a lot of other parts of the country. Um so, yeah, it just, it was, it's like your default mode of thinking. Like, you know, you're in college and like, you're going to get some beer and it's like, oh, I don't have a lot of money, but, you know, I'll spring for that red hook instead of, you know, that Keystone light or whatever. Is there one, <laughs> is there one beer in particular you can remember that really made you go, wow, I got to do this? Um, you know, I have a few over the years. The first keg I ever legally bought uh, on the morning of my 21st birthday was uh, a a keg of Elysian's Immortal IPA. Whoa, good way to start. Yeah, that was, that was the party That was the party beer. Uh, we drank it all day long. Uh, eventually, someone rode a bike down the stairs. It was a, it was a good party. Um, but I have just memories of, you know, that that was sort of your baseline, right? Like, yeah, right. And uh, so I've had a long, long love with some of the, like, real classics, like uh, Pyramid Snowcap. Oh, yeah. I just, Man, that's one of my favorites. I just love that beer. Um, and I have just for, I mean, back when I was an undergrad and I had a lot of money, it was like, sweet, it's 7% alcohol and like reasonably affordable and tastes good. Like, yeah, I'm all about this. Uh, and since then, I've kind of grown to appreciate some of its other qualities and uh, one model of, our winter ale after One that. of the first recipes I ever remember coming up with on my own was for my own kind of try at Snowcap. Yeah. You know, because my wife and I both just love that beer so much. No, absolutely. I, I think the first proper batch, non-Mr. Mr. Beer Kit batch of homebrew I ever did was a winter warmer type beer that uh, Bob had put up in his homebrew shop. And that was, I think, the first... <laughs> the first batch I ever did in 2003-ish. Wow. Like so, okay, here's here's the tough question that all the brewers hate. Oh. Describe your brewing philosophy uh, without using the word balance. God, don't <laughs> Good. Ah, good question. Yeah. Well, and most people, most people just kind of dance around trying to think of another way to say yes. balance. But, uh, uh, 
you know? No, that's a that's actually a really good question because I think um, even when people talk about being you know extreme, like there's balance involved, right? Yeah, like, right. So for me, it's um, clean or cleanliness. Like um, I have a real thing about like fermentation defects like you know I, and i can tell um, from this beer, I, have, I, should, I have a I really should, big thing about clarity yeah uh, I, am. I, I can see that <laughs> I, and i, I want to mention that we're sitting here drinking an india pale colch is that what you call yeah, it yeah the ipk india pale colch so this is a this is a colch you use colch yeast i assume yeah we use uh colch yeast and wireman pilsner and uh ferment it nice and cool and it gets lagered and it gets filtered and you said it was hopped with Amarillo and Sterling. And Mosaic. And Mosaic. Yeah, this is kind of a weird little hybrid. I wanted to make something for summer. And uh, I mean, this is a delicious beer. It is crystal clear. It is clean as, as anything can be, man. Ah, cheers to that. Really, really <laughs> a gorgeous, gorgeous beer that I'm enjoying immensely. Uh, so, yeah. so basically then what you want to do is not have anything get in the way of the ingredients you put in there. I just, uh, I like to have a, a, a thorough and, and clean ferment. I like it to not have any, you know, byproducts that showed that it struggled in any way, whether right. it's diacetyl or acetaldehyde or anything like that. Or, um, I have a personal crusade against cloudy beers. So all you, I guess, out on the East Coast that uh, are digging oh. your, you know, juicy Vermont IPAs, well, uh, they're, they're terrible and you're terrible. Oh, uh, you nah, know, um, just, it's interesting. I'm just kidding. Yeah, well, no, I, I, completely, <laughs> I understand because I have pretty much the same theory. Uh, yeah. I, I had a friend who sent me uh, 10 Northeast IPAs and I put a review of them up on our website. Yeah. Um, and People didn't seem to like what I had to say. Yeah. But what was interesting was that there were a few of those that were crystal clear, very clean and straightforward. Yeah. So no, just, it's, it's, it's all in good fun, right? Like, I like that we can we can have different styles. And, and, you know, clarity is one of those things that people sort of underestimate as a style characteristic. I mean, and, and I like it. I mean, I didn't find that the haze added anything to these beers. Yeah. But... I mean, you know, on the other hand, it's nice that there's something for everybody out yeah. there. I'm okay with a little bit of chill haze if that's, you know, if particularly the polyphenol haze from dry hopping or something like that. Sure. Like, that's fine. That just, you know, that happens. Um, it's when you get yeast and, you get, and when you get a brewery that's serving you a glass that's like a milkshake and it's, yeah. it's yeast or, or it's dry hops that they just sucked up when they were racking. And uh, that's just that's just shoddy workmanship right there. Come on. Yeah, that's what I've found about some of the ones I've tried is that the, there's so much whatever particulate matter in there causing that haze that there's kind of a grittiness in the mouthfeel. Yeah, you, know? you get that. And then, I mean, all those yeast cells are all going to die in that keg and then it's going you know, to start getting all weird and hot doggy as they so, autolyze. Just let me say, for those of you out there who like them, <laughs> that's fine. Drink them. I'm not advocating you should. Yeah. I, well, just, just, I, think, I think one of the things that, you know, it's interesting to, to pay attention to is, as both a pro brewer and a home brewer is like the different kinds of haze, right? Like, yeah. um, and recognizing that there are different kinds of hazes. Like, you know, I mean, everyone thinks, you know, Hefeweizen should be super hazy from the yeast. And well, the yeast is a part of it, but really it's more about protein haze from the, all that wheat in there. From the wheat in there, yeah. Right. Um, and so, you know, just because, you know, haze is okay doesn't mean that, like, yeast 
chunder is okay. You know, right. so we're using the chunder word again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, and, you know, and, and again, I just, I have not found that it adds anything to my enjoyment yeah. of the beer. Uh, no, other people feel differently, and that's absolutely fine. Yeah. I mean, those yeast will grab onto to hop oils and stuff like that, and so it, it changes the flavor, but it drastically shortens the shelf life, too. So, I mean, you've really got to drink a lot yeah. of that stuff when it's new. So is there one beer in particular you find yourself longing to drink? I mean, when you sit back and think about, boy, I would like to have a... What would oh, it be? like style or, or, or a just brand? Or anything, just anything, either one. Yeah, it's one of those, like, uh, when, you, when you're a brewer and you've got, you know, we, we keep 12 taps running at any given time and we produce about two dozen different beers over the course of a year. It's, I'm, I'm always kind of drinking a little bit of everything just to make sure right. everything is okay. But my tastes do change. Like, I go, I go to kind of off the hops for a while and then I'll go back on them. And, um, and for me, it's, it's funny. Like, um, I think you get this probably out of a lot of professional brewers. Um, so one time, like a year or two ago, uh, we were at the, the hot, the hot mob roadshow, the, the triple IPA thing uh-huh. that uh, happens up here in Seattle every year where everyone brews triple IPAs and, and puts them all on. We were at Brower's, um, and I looked out over the crowd, the place was packed and hopping. Everyone's drinking triple IPAs. And you could absolutely tell who all the brewers were because all of them were drinking Belton's Pilsner. <laughs> like, we're at a triple IPA thing and all the brewers are drinking Pilsner. Uh, and I think that you sort of gravitate towards a really well-made, clean, refreshing, reasonable alcohol beer. And that's what... So, like, our Kolsch, like, people ask me, like, which of your, which of your beers is your favorite? And I'm like, ah, oh, you're making me pick amongst my children. But uh, right. the one I drink the most of is absolutely our Kolsch. Like, that's, it's clean, it's nice, it's what I want end of the day right when i just got to get up and do it again you know yeah that's it's truly amazing i mean i kind of went through the same evolution you know starting off with all dark beers mm-hmm. you know and very high alcohol and then i kind of discovered that the light beers are more of a challenge to brew because there's no place yeah, to hide no. and start doing those and now i mean it's like if i have a choice i'll take a german pilsner over almost any oh because it's any hard day. like for me it's yeah it's it's one of those things like um you know people ask like why aren't craft brewers making more lagers and why you know and one it's you know i can flip a, a two ales in the time it takes me to, right. to really properly do a lager so it's a, it's a tank space thing um and also it's hard right so you got to be able to do it or you know yeah. you're gonna make a real lackluster lager and that's that's true, man. You have to absolutely do it yeah. right. We've made, I think we've made three loggers ever uh, here, just because our compromise is our Kolsch, which is we treat like a logger. It gets a, a longer ferment, colder, and right. um, with you know specific and appropriate yeast. Um, so we kind of get a lot of those flavors by going that route. Um, but every now and then, I do like to kick out a logger, just like to because it's hard, like to prove I can, right? Yeah, like, right. So we exactly. like make an Oktoberfest because it's hard. Or um, our third anniversary ale was a, um, a whiskey barrel aged Doppelbach. Oh man, because I was like, what, what do craft lager, brewers never do? Like loggers, what do they never really never do? Like big loggers, what do they really really never do? Put them in a barrel. <laughs> So, so that's what, you uh, that's what we did for our third anniversary. Um, and so that was fun. I mean, I was sitting there spending, like, I was in that tank for eight weeks or something. Wow. I was just swear, swearing, like, I need my tank back. <laughs> um, Gotta make some money. Yeah, I was sitting there going, like, you know, it'd be really nice if I could make some IPA right now. But uh, <laughs> but it was fun. It was totally worth it just because it it's, it's the challenge, right? Like, you got to do stuff that's love of the game. Exactly, man. Well, not only, I mean, it keeps your customers interested and it keeps you interested. Yeah, exactly. Totally. You know? I mean, I, you know. I can't make IPA all the time. 
<laughs> even though sometimes it feels like that's what we do. So kind of kind of get back to this uh, this IPK. Yeah. As it warms up, I'm really getting the yeast character coming. Out. I'm getting a little bit of that fruitiness. Yeah, a little fruity. What, what's the what are the Kolsch yeast that you use? Uh, we we are using right now. It's uh, White Labs uh, Kolsch strain there, whatever that is, twenty nine or whatever. Uh, okay. Which is it's not it's a good yeast. It's cooperative. Um, it flocculates reasonably well, so you can harvest it reasonably well, and uh, but it also stays in suspension long enough to kind of get the job done. Right. And, the the uh, fruity notes in it play really nicely with those hops. Yeah, you know? I get a I get a weird like watermelony bubblegum thing out of there, which I'm not entirely sure if that's something coming out of the mosaic or if it's something coming out of the the, the yeast. I'm, I'm digging it. Like it's when the first time we uh, we drank it after it had been you know filtered it was like what is that yeah i mean it, it works with without all that hopping it could almost yeah. be too much you know so almost, it, there's almost a little bit of like a, a sake uh, yeah like right. a like a perfumey um, and i get a little bit of like a, a jalapeno thing i think that might also be uh like a little, like, a little like, vegetable like a, sort of thing. a little green pepper, thing. green pepper yeah. thing and uh, that could be probably uh maybe those mosaics they can be a little bit could be little could bit be so what is the most unusual beery thing you've done Oh, that's a good question. Um, so I don't know if you know about uh, Strange Brewfest in Port Townsend. Uh, I'm, right? I actually, uh, I do know about it because I was invited to go this year, but I couldn't make it. All right. Well, I highly suggest you and anyone listening, go, go. Absolutely. Uh, it's my favorite beer festival of the year. Um, it's in Port Townsend, Washington, in the, the last weekend in January every year. Um and it's insane. Uh, there is a good challenge all the brewers just to make whatever they want, and it wow. has to be weird. Um, so I've spent four years of going to this thing now trying to win it, and we finally did win the strangest beer last uh, last uh, right in January this year. Um, so really? So, and, and what was it? So uh, it was a beer we called... Uh, uh, how are you with... Yeah, well, actually, if you just ask me what my favorite swear word is. Uh, so we called it it let's go to strange brew uh so like uh but spelled like uh, phuket thailand yeah. oh yeah right uh so it's phuket let's go to strange brew uh so then people spent the whole time ordering a it uh which was cool um that's great but we we took our eagle harbor ipa our year-round ipa and i made a a thai infused simple syrup with mm-hmm. uh, ginger and galangal and lemongrass and uh, palm sugar and lime juice and um, made this really really potent simple syrup so we got a spike of that. So I threw a lot of those like Thai tropical flavors in there. Um, and then I took our stout and mixed it with some agar, uh, yeah. heated it up, and then used a, a syringe to shoot it into six foot lengths of silicon tubing and then dunked it in an ice bath and then used a, I jerry-rigged our air compressor to make like an air gun. And uh, so we just hooked it up and just hit it with compressed air and it shot out these six foot long gelled beer noodles. Um, they were literally just stout and agar. Um, and it made these, these crazy noodles. Uh, so you got noodles in your glass that were literally just beer. And then we garnished it with some cilantro. And then I put a bottle of uh, sriracha out there. You could, you could spice it. I think that Drew and I have just lost the title of weirdest yeah. beer ever. Uh, it's garnish is important. That's one thing I learned. Uh, I learned at Strange Brew. Uh, we made we made a beer that was brewed with squid ink one year. Um, that's the first place where I was sitting there. It was I come up with my best ideas in the shower, and so I was standing in the shower one day thinking about um, alternate sources of starch for a beer. 
I was thinking about corn, and I was like, all right, we could do like a, some sort of cream ale kind of thing. And I was like, well, where can I get corn? And I was thinking like, well, you know, corn has to be pretty gelatinized before you can use it, so you have to cook it. You can do like cereal mash. And then I was like, well, if I use pre-cooked corn, where can get? I was like, oh, I could just use tortilla chips. And then I was like, I could use Doritos. <laughs> so we uh, we made a, a yeah we made a beer called Beeritos. It's uh, we made it every year now because people demand it. Uh, wow. It's thirty three percent. Cool Ranch Doritos. Does that does the Cool Ranch flavor come through? Yeah, we made we made nacho cheese one year, and it just wasn't as good. And if you think about it, like nacho cheese is sort of a generic kind of cheesy, crunchy, right. salty, and it's more about the more about the salt and the texture for that. Right. Whereas, like, nothing tastes like Cool Ranch Doritos, no, but that's Cool true. Ranch Doritos, like ranch, doesn't taste like Cool Ranch. <laughs> no, Doritos. no, like, that, it tastes like anything in the yeah, natural it's, world. It's a super specific flavor, and it really comes through. Uh, surprisingly, comes through. And they went um, into the mash, I assume. So yeah, we just basically just put. I go to Safeway and like unload the entire aisle of like party bags of Cool Ranch Doritos. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, last year, the, the Frito-Lay, like, reps were there, like, stocking the shelves. And I just, like, walked in and, like, unloaded it. <laughs> and, and they looked over, like, what? What are you doing? Having a hell of a party. They're like, well, <laughs> someone likes Doritos. And I told, I told them what I was doing with it. And I thought that was fantastic. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, ju- it's literally just, like, some two-row, you know, base malt and Doritos and a little bit of, I think, a little bit of acid malt just to adjust pH. Right. Um, and then, yeah, a little bit of Cascade. And that's it. Wow. It's a little cream ale, and uh, we garnish it with a Dorito on top because, again, garnish is important, right? <laughs> you know, Drew and I uh, made a uh, clam chowder saison a couple of years <laughs> yeah, ago. Yeah, that's in my alley. Uh, yeah, I'll have to send you the recipe <laughs> for it because I think you could really do it justice. But I think you may have come up with weirder <laughs> shit than we did. Yeah. I didn't think there was much weirder. We, I actually have a picture of John Palmer pouring potato flakes into the mash. Oh. He, I was on my way to Brazil, and I stopped, and Drew and I were going down there to yeah. speak, so I stopped in Pasadena, <laughs> his place, to brew, and Palmer came over to help us. So I have this picture of him pouring the mashed potatoes into the Ooh, mash with the clam chowder yeah. saison, and uh, that's going to be uh, blackmail material. I was going to say, that seems like a, a bit of a texture nightmare, I can imagine it being. Uh, it, was it actually it, was worked, it sort out, of thick, it, it worked out surprisingly well, yeah. uh, you know? <laughs> considering we had no idea what the hell we were doing. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, you know, that's advice to anyone. Like if think about like, think about the, the reason why you're adding something to beer, right? Why do we add corn? Right. Well, cause we can get, you know, eventually we can get those starches to turn into sugars that we can make beer. Yeah. Out, right. So what are alternate sources? Right. And that's, that's what I always say to people who are saying, well, is this too many ingredients? Is this not enough ingredients? It's like, Use whatever you want <laughs> to make the beer you want. Just be yep. sure that you know why it's there and you can justify why you're using yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. You know? And if you don't know why something's in a recipe, like, why, why are you putting it in there? Exactly. So, so do the research because there's probably a good reason it's in there. Well, <laughs> um, there may be a good you know? reason it's in there or it could just be that somebody went, oh, hell, let's yeah. try some of this and see. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or it's, you know, trying to cover for, you know... It's interesting too, I and mean, when you get homebrew recipes scaled down from from big brewer recipes, like you know, some of the process stuff results in like you know, we can't all do double decoctions or anything, right? Then that's what your melanoid molds for. I put some of that in there. That's right, man. So, um, what's the worst thing that's ever happened to you when you're brewing? Oh, um, let's see, home brewing or professionally or just either, ever? Either way. Um, God, the worst. There've been some real doozies over the years. Um, I think the worst, like from a funny perspective, is uh, I used to homebrew with a friend of mine when I was back living in Miami, and uh, 
eventually we were just, I mean, we were both in the same homebrew club or officers in the club and, and, uh, you know, both equally, you know, fine homebrewers in our own rights. But we eventually like had to stop brewing together because it was like chaos and and madness. Uh, so we were doing a, a, I think a double IPA, like a 10 gallon double IPA. And I was using a 10 gallon igloo as the mash ton and we were brewing outside because it's Miami. And, um, so we mashed in and then I think we were already like four or five pints into it by that point. Right. And Uh this is the real reason we had to stop brewing together. Uh, but we, uh, we picked up the propane tank and realized we were really low on propane. So like, we're going to go get some propane. So there's a gas station nearby. So we go to go get propane, come back and we go to start sparging and, uh, there's no liquid in the mash tun at all. Uh, we had just left the, the drain valve open and it just drained like through my deck and the entire like first work just flushed away to nothing. Oh no. So we just gave up and, uh, popped open a nice, Belgian triple or something we had and just continued drinking. Um, you, didn't, but, you didn't like just go ahead with sparge and make like a, like a bitter or something. Like yeah. That. It was like, we, we, we were in like, we could totally do like a mild if we sort of remash it. And then we were just like, at that point we're like, nah, <laughs> yeah, this, this is a disaster. So but, what, what common wisdom that comes with brewing you think is like wrong or, or overinflated? Oh Yeah. Um, I think that, uh, a lot of homebrewers overdo it, overthink it. Um, because a lot of the things that have come down to homebrewing over the years have been sort of what has come out of our sort of macro lager tradition, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, we think about like a herm system or a rim system or something like that, right? Like when you have a mash tun the size of a swimming pool, you, you know, have to do certain right. things to try and keep it a little bit more even um, in a way that isn't exactly that much of a problem for a 10-gallon pot right. know, that you could, you know, stir with a spoon or, you know. So so you think that a lot of homebrewers kind of overcomplicate I mean, things? It, well, it's this your tendency whenever you have any hobby, right, is to sort of like some people are gearheads. It's like it's like genetic, right? right? Some people just, you know, it's the, those are the guys with the, the $4,000 racing bikes that take them out four times a year, right? Like... And every now and then you get someone who totally like needs that bike and goes out all the time on it and good for them. Um, there's a lot of people that overthink it and they're just like, I need to have this to make better beer. And the reality is like, no, you just need, you need to understand how to clean things. You need to understand how to sanitize things and know that those are different things. And then you need to control the temperature. And that's 90% of the way to making perfectly good. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just, I just did my 502nd batch in the same (laughs) cooler that I've been using for 19 years. Wow. You know, and it's like, I don't feel any need to upgrade to something fancier. Yeah. For, for number 500, a friend of mine, Kevin at Pico Brew, came yeah. down to join me for batch number huh? 500. And, you know, I'm, we get about halfway through the brew, and I said, so what do you think of my brewing style? He goes, it's more primitive than I imagined. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and that's true. It, it is compared to a lot of people's, but I don't need anything more to make good beer. And the most important thing is I enjoy it. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a hobby. And if you're not having fun, then you're doing yeah. it wrong. If you want to, if you're an electrical engineer or you got buddies who are, and you want to totally rig up a PID controlled, you know, with mash rakes and all this stuff for your 10 gallon pot or like, cool, do it. Like yeah. that's, that's fun. Right. Like that, the equipment is like half the fun sometimes. Right. But just don't stress about that. Like it's not going to make the beer appreciably better to the point. 
No, what's going to make the, the beer? The joy of making the equipment is you know not worthwhile. Right? Yeah, what's going to make the beer better is yeah. your attention and thought process. Yeah, and it's the same thing with you know people that stress about should I add, you know, one ounce of this or one and a half ounces of this yeah. or one and a quarter ounces of this, and it's like, like I just <laughs> chill out, try it, it'll be fine. Cool. So, um, what interesting discovery have you made about the brewing process? Uh, or you think something um, you just paid enough attention to? One thing that, like, one thing that took me a really, really, really long time to learn was the importance of your base malt. Um, I think as homebrewers, we tend to we tend to start out with the idea that like your two row or whatever is an interchangeable scaffold that mm-hmm. you just build the beer on and all the flavor comes from that 15, 20% of roasted caramelized, you know, whatever you're putting in there. Um, and I think everyone should like do some either single malt, single hot beers, like smash beers, really appreciate the differences between the different maltsters and the different roast levels of those base malts. Right. Um, and like, and the simplicity of it and realize that like, you know, you can use crystal mold as a crutch. Like, uh, you don't, you don't need as much as you think you do. If you've got, you know, a reasonably good base malt and good fermentation practices and right. stuff like that, you, people tend to overdo that kind of stuff because they're not thinking about, you know, how much flavor they're getting. Um, same thing with, uh, the aroma you get out of, you know, quote unquote bittering hops. Right. Like, you know, the, the quick and dirty assumption is, you know, you put hops in the beginning, you get bitterness, you put them in the middle, you get sort of some bitterness and some flavor, and, you know, you put them in the end, you mostly get. Here at the brewery, we basically don't do kettle additions anymore, uh, like mid-boil. Um, right. we, we do either first wort hopping or, or nine, you know, 60, 90 minute, like, bittering additions, and then a whirlpool addition. Mm-hmm. Because here, you know, on a pro scale, like, we have a whirlpool you know the, the the hops are typically spending seventy five minutes or so between um, you know kettle off and being in the tank. So there we have a, a sort of steep process. So that's something that happens on bigger you know bigger systems that doesn't happen on a home scale necessarily. Right. So kettle hopping makes more sense. But if you do a really simple beer like a really clean little pilsner or or a pale you know um, you know something something light and reasonably simple and only do a bittering edition, you'll get a surprising amount of aroma. Like, people think it all boils off, and it doesn't. I learned this making my, you know, test batches of my Kolsch. Right. Um, just a little bit of a decent bittering hop. You, you will get hop aroma, you know, through 90 minutes. Yeah, I know. And, and it's, it's one of those things that once you start looking for it and testing it, you can find it. But the conventional wisdom is yeah. just... conventional wisdom. Oh, it all just evaporates. and you yeah. think, No, like, it, you know, most uh, really low-hop, you know, lager-type things have, you know, they have one edition and then usually an edition near the end. Right, right. So tying in with that, what are some of your favorite ingredients in terms of malts, oh, hops, and yeast? Yeah. Um, I'm a really big fan of Weirman's malts for, for German things. So we use a lot of their Pilsner, um, a lot of their Vienna. Um, their wheat is fantastic. Um, I, ter- I tend to prefer local ingredients if I can get them, uh, but I also tend to prefer better ingredients. Uh, yeah, so I- it's, that, it's that balance between, like, I'll, I'll use local until I find something that so knocks it out of the water. that. Um, so, for example, we used to use um, uh, Great Western Maltings Crystal 40 uh, mm-hmm. a lot. And uh, one time I, uh, I got to try some samples of uh, Simpsons, uh, British, uh, crystal light, crystal dark. 
and it's like night and day. Like you just eat, eat, eat kernels of both of them side by side, and you know, it's painfully clear which one you want to use. <laughs> one tastes like cardboard, and one tastes like raisins and caramels and all kinds of other stuff. Cool. Um, so I'm, I'm a big fan of uh, the Simpsons Crystal Malts. Uh, we use a lot of Great Western's Northwest Pale Ale Malt. Yeah, that's a really nice, affordable quality base malt. I'm not a big fan of like two row pale. I think it's just boring. Okay, so like right. I said, like when you're working on uh, your base malts, um, it's a layer of flavor that you can ignore if you go for something that doesn't taste like anything. So I just here's a little thing. I've I've been playing around with a couple new malts lately. Mm-hmm. One is from Great Western. It's their Sacra malt. Yeah, that's Sacra Sacra Fifty. Yeah, I got exactly. to eat some. I haven't gotten to brew with it because uh, I guess. It's a little bit in short supply, but I'm trying to get a sack to play with. It, yeah, it I promised me one. That's what I just did. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's kind of like a cross between Crystal and Munich. It's, it's yeah. real, real nice. And the other one uh, that uh, that they've started carrying, a Brewcraft at least, uh, is a uh, Waffron family Irish ale malt. Oh, yeah. I, I ran into at CBC. I met James Laughrin, who mm-hmm. runs the farm. It's like sixth-generation family barley farm, yeah. you know? In Ireland, and their ale malt—they make an ale malt and a stout malt. I haven't tried the stout malt. I've heard good things about that stout malt. I, 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 I crunched some kernels one time, but I haven't brewed with it. The diastatic power on the stout malt is two sixty. Whoa! Can you believe that? Yeah. I mean, that'll convert anything. Yeah, exactly. In there like, with yeah, it. let's. You know. So how, some... how about hops and yeast? Any favorites there? Uh, yeast. Uh, so like I said, I, I lived in Miami. I brewed in Miami for for years. Um. I used to have the problem of, at that time, you know, the mid-2000s, uh, the closest homebrew shop was basically in Orlando. Um, and uh, so anytime I ordered anything, like, it would have to come in a UPS truck in the middle of Miami summer. And more than once, I got a, a, I got a dead pitch of liquid yeast. Um, so I started keeping uh, packets of uh, Saf Ale, um, the 04, the 05, they're mm-hmm. British, they're American dry yeast. I'm a big fan. Like I really dig the 05. It's it's cheap. It's shelf stable. It performs well. It's easy to harvest. Right. Um, it's a really like nice workhorse yeast, and it's dry. Um, so at the very least, like keep a packet in your fridge. So if anything goes awry ever, you can just like bust Always. it out. You know, you got a batch of Belgian that the yeast just isn't doing anything. Just. Slap an American in there and make a different That's beer. That's right. At least you end up with some kind it's, of beer. Yeah, it's I always it's it's an emergency backup if nothing else. I, I uh, agree, man. I always have some around. Yeah, I like that. Uh, I like that strain a lot. I like the uh, White Labs Kolsch um, over the the Weiss Kolsch. I think it flocks better. Um, that, that's very interesting. Yeah, it's we used to use. I like the flavor of the the Weiss uh, Kolsches. Uh, we used to use the Kolsch two strain. Um, and then it, it was like a special order kind of deal. We had to give them a few weeks' notice so they could grow some up. And um, so one time they just didn't. We needed it like yesterday, and they only had Kolsch one. So we got a pitch of the Kolsch one in and tried them side by side. And we liked both of them, and so we just started using the Kolsch one because it was more readily available. Um, but then I tried the White uh, White Labs, and it flocks a lot, lot better. Um, so it makes a cleaner beer. Yeah, um, right. And exactly, man. Especially yeah. I mean, if you've got time to, to lager it for a really long time, or if you can filter it, then that's fine. Right. Um, but uh, that cold strain is a little bit powdery. So um, what's something that you wish more people would, would drink or explore? Oh. The style? Yeah, style-wise. Um, you know, we've been talking about a lot about lagers, and I think, uh, you know, I'm a big fan of our Kolsch and things like that. I think that that kind of stuff gets a little bit 
I don't know, written off as, as boring or, or as, you know, sort of run of the mill. Um, or I think like they actually, you can really appreciate it on an artistic level if you kind of think about it. <laughs> that's that's like, a really good way to think about it. Too, yeah, man. it's in the way that, like, I mean, like, you know, people people badmouth, you know, Budweiser or whatever. Um, but I like, I as a professional, like, I appreciate it on a, on a industrial level, like, on, as, as on a process level. <laughs> like, I appreciate what went into it, even if like what went into it is terribly boring. So, um, in any other general brewing thoughts, is there like there's some one piece of knowledge you wanted to pass along <laughs> to other brewers? Yeah, one, um, one, one piece of advice. One piece of advice. Uh, that's a good question. Um, I think you know, temperature control is is big, and um, that's a big thing I, I I take really seriously here. We we fermentation fermentation control, um, proper cold storage. Um, those are really huge. Uh, oxygen is your mortal enemy. Once uh, once that word <laughs> hits right. hits yeast, uh, so um, you know if you can get a CO two tank and, and purge carboys and and you know you got a beer gun, a little Blickman beer gun, you're filling bottles, you can really give it a balls a good purge. That's just going to make your beer better. Right. Um, okay. Uh, yeah. Last question: What non beer thing are you fascinated with or obsessed by? Ooh. Obsessed by um, something has nothing to do with beer. Wait, when you're not thinking about <laughs> what do beer, I do, what do I do when I'm not thinking about beer? Yeah, um, I do a lot of foraging uh, and a lot of a lot of foraging and, and fishing and, and like wildcrafting and stuff. So uh, like this afternoon, as soon as we're done with this interview, I'm gonna go check my crab pots out off the island. And, uh, oh, I am so jealous. Yeah, probably do a little bit of salmon fishing, even though it's really early in the season. But, oh, uh, man. Yeah. Well, that's yeah. the benefits of living on an island, right? Like, well, uh, yeah. What's the, point of, what's the point of living here if I can't, you know, take take full measure of the forests and the sea? Uh, Dungeness crab has to be one of the best reasons to live in the Pacific Northwest. Oh, yes. And uh, we definitely stock up uh, during the season to the point where, like, we just, like, crabbed out, like, totally, totally crabbed out. Uh, I, I can't even imagine that. I've, ne- I've never quite uh, reached that point. I know? think we caught 80 last year. Oh, uh, so... <laughs> Wow, that's so, amazing. Yeah, one time we had a uh, we had a particularly good day on the boat. I had some friends with me, so we had like we caught three or four limits. I mean, that's like fifteen Dungeness crabs, and uh, so uh, so okay. Um, well, yeah. uh, Russell, thank you so much, man, for taking your time today. I just yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for stopping by. Wow. It's my pleasure because your beer is great, and it's been wonderful talking to you. Yeah, so, cheers. Cool, man. Thanks. <laughs> That was my conversation with Russell Everett at Bainbridge Brewing on Bainbridge Island, uh, just uh, across the sound from Seattle. Uh, some really, really interesting ideas. I love the uh, the corn chips in the beer idea. Uh, I love his uh, Thai beer idea. I mean, this guy can actually come up with strange ideas that sound appealing to me. I don't know what's going on. I don't know. Maybe it's exposure to me. <laughs> Could be. That's it. That's a, that's the story that I'm going to sell uh, everybody, and I'm sticking to it. Okay. Okay. Drew has warped my mind, and I can actually maybe appreciate weird beers. Uh, Yay! One one other little side note: Should you uh, go up there and stop by the brewery, walk across the parking lot to the Bainbridge Organic Distillery. And have some of the most amazing whiskey that you will ever put in your mouth. Some of it uh, aged in barrels made from 200-year-old Japanese oak trees. And uh, 
a, a real story behind that too that I won't bother you with right now. But uh, well, you're gonna have to bother us. You're gonna have to bother us with it at some point. Okay. Okay. Here it goes. So uh, it turns out the Bainbridge Island has one of the uh, oldest Japanese settlements in the United States, uh, and they are in the process of restoring and excavating it. In order to help them raise funds to do that, uh, Bainbridge Brewery jumped through all kinds of legal and diplomatic hoops to be able to ship in this 200-year-old Japanese oak and have barrels made from it that they could age their whiskey in. Uh, they were telling me that because of the age of it, the wood is quite porous, and the first few batches of whiskey they put in these barrels just pretty much ran right back out again. They figured out a way to seal the barrels, and uh, they are now aging the whiskey in it. The whiskey sells, brace yourself, for $500 a bottle. Now, <laughs> yeah, but... $400 of every bottle goes as a fundraiser to the Japanese Village Restoration Project. So, uh, you know, it's okay. Yeah, yeah, it's they're they're not just uh not not just raking in the cash on their own. Now, I'm not much of a whiskey drinker. I, I haven't had a lot in my life, but uh the owner of the distillery offered us a taste of this whiskey, and all I can say is if whiskey tastes like this, I'm going to start drinking it all the time. <laughs> it was freaking amazing. It was smooth and rich. Touch of fruitiness to it even that uh, that comes from the barrels. Just, just outstanding. So, um, at, at any rate, go see Russell at uh, Bainbridge Brewing and uh, take a walk across the parking lot to the organic distillery also while you're up there. Man, if you get into that sort of whiskey, you're going to have to dip into your retirement funds a lot faster than you thought you were going to. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, should I ever buy a bottle of that whiskey, I think I will be uh, drinking it by the uh, drop until it's gone. <laughs> <laughs> Just one drop. Yeah, right. So you're going to take that as a challenge and make a Cool Ranch Doritos beer? Who says I haven't already? Actually, the funniest part is I think... <laughs> The Cool Ranch Doritos beer has been the beer that I've seen like pop up in weird random corners of the internet. <laughs> People say, oh, I made really? this beer with Cool Ranch Doritos. So Russell is definitely a guy after my own heart in terms of just being, yeah, how can you be playful but also produce something that's worth a damn? You know, a lot, yeah. a lot of my problems with, uh, a lot of my problems with how brewers are being playful nowadays is the playfulness is almost thoughtless almost like you just spun a random number generator to say i'm going to throw x and y and z together so russell to me strikes me as kind of working in the same vein that i like to work which is have a reason for the for the stupidity that you're doing yeah i agree uh you know keep the beer the center and then add the other stuff that makes it you know more interesting or offbeat whatever you want to do but remember that it's beer first yep beer is beer and flavor is flavor, and they can meet, but be good about it. <laughs> and they right. should meet. Yes. All right, and I think it's time for us to move into our last segment after this break. All right, we're going to take a quick break here, and we'll be right back, and Drew will be talking about gin. The Wild Rustic Spring Private Collection from Y-East offers a selection of yeast and bacteria cultures characteristic of Belgian and sour styles to pair with the new season. 
3725 Beer de Garde, 3031 Saison Brett Blend, and 5223 Lactobacillus Brevis are available April through June at your local homebrew shop, exclusively from our private culture collection. These are the strains that exemplify the beers of Europe in Cezanne, Lambic Styles, Goes, Brett Beers, and more. And now you can use them to create world-class beers worldwide. No matter the direction you take these wild, rustic cultures, they'll become your new tradition. Find out more about which styles pair best with this release at yeastlab.com. Explore the history of tart, fruity, and refreshing Goza-style beer with the latest book from Brewer's Publication, Goza, Brewing a Classic German Beer for the Modern Era. Written by award-winning veteran brewer Fal Allen, Goza includes 27 recipes including Sea Quench Sour from Dogfish Head Craft Brewery and Ruben Brewer's 2017 Great American Beer Festival gold medal winning Goza. Right now, Brewers Publications is giving experimental homebrewing listeners a discount on Goza. Go to BrewersPublications.com and use code EXPERIMENTAL to take 20% off Goza. That's right, you'll save 20% when you use code EXPERIMENTAL at BrewersPublications.com. Well, you know, when we're not drinking beer, you can probably find both of us having something with gin in it, right? Oh, yeah. And so, of course, we have to go back and we have to revisit our April Fool's episode. Uh, This was (laughs) episode 63. And I don't know about you, Denny, but I think this is the episode that we caught the most flack for. (laughs) Oh man, did we ever. There were, there were a number of people who didn't seem to understand that it was April Fool's Day when we were doing this. And there were a number of people who got very upset about things. And even some of the ones who did understand it was April Fool's Day got upset about the gardening segment. Yeah, well, I was going to say, yeah, we had anti-pot comments. We had people who thought that we were on the wild water or the raw water trend. God, I hope that died. I haven't checked. <laughs> Anyway, we got into some really silly stuff there, but one of the things that wasn't quite so silly was Drew talking about gin. Yeah, so gin is my other passion in terms of the imbibing world. Uh, I still collect and drink my way through various craft gins and very small batch gins, all of them very interesting, some of them uh, with flavors I never would have thought to put in gin. But the world of gin right now is super hot, lots of different options for you to try. I still highly recommend that you get your butt out there and you try some gin. Don't let the juniper scare you. A lot of modern uh, gins, particularly a lot of modern American gins, are less juniper-forward. But I like juniper, so whatever. But this, I think, was a great segment because I still have my regular gin and tonic. Uh, nod back to my grandparents. And uh, I think you should, too. So sit back and listen to this real quick lesson on the history and how to use gin. Thank you. 
over here to the bar. I am sitting on a bar stool, my elbows leaning on the bar, waiting for Drew to make me a drink. Yeah, and of course today, yeah, if I'm not drinking a beer, I'm hardly having a glass of gin. Because gin is one of my true loves. Right on, man. I just remember spending summers with my grandparents, and they would make gin and tonics every evening. So gin and tonic is one of my favorite things. So let's talk a little bit about gin, because the world of gin is wide these days. Now, to start with, gin is a neutral grain spirit. It's infused with multiple botanicals. The only one that absolutely has to be there is juniper. Uh, Juniper is required by law. Otherwise, the sky's the limit. You'll see gins out there with lavender, coriander, angelica, sage, mint, I mean, just about anything. I've seen some with chilies. I've seen some that are barrel-aged. Now, the herbs and spices are usually either added from infusion into a neutral spirit, and those are called infused or compound gins, and they're kind of considered a little bit cheaper. The preferable way to do it is what they call via distillation infusion or distilled gin, where there's actually a steamed basket held in the middle of a column still that allows them to pass the ethanol through uh, as they're de- re-distilling the spirit. And that steam is actually what extracts the, the flavor compounds from the, the botanicals. Now, lots of craft distilleries out there, you know, all these small little operations that are starting to pop up, they will actually start with grain-neutral spirits. That's the literal term for it, grain-neutral spirits, GNS, sourced from, say, a major industrial uh, industrial still, like somewhere in, say, in Indiana, and they'll truck that in, and then they'll actually redistill that on site. And the whole trick is start with something neutral, redistill, and use the redistillation to actually go and infuse the spirits. Now, historically, gin would have been much sweeter than what we are used to these days. So it used to be distilled with pot stills, and these days it's now uh, used with modern reflux column stills. But gin also has a bad history. You know, lots of drunkenness, uh, questionable quality. Uh, associations with things like Graves' disease, and particularly it's associated with dissolute behavior in the UK, and particularly amongst the poor, which is the reason why you got the classic Hogarth prints of uh, Gin Street, or sorry, Gin Lane and Beer Street, you know, showing the Gin Lane is a terrible place to be, and the Beer Street is all healthy because beer is healthy for you, and gin is bad. So that's the history of gin, some of the basics of it. Let's get into the styles that are available these days. The original is called Geneva or Dutch Gin, and you'll probably find one of the big ones is from Bowles, uh, B-O-L-S, and it, it is the source. It is originally, it was made from a malt wine, and there still is actually a portion of malt wine that is supposed to be in true Geneva. It is sweeter, and they use the herbs to actually cover up sort of the initial rough distillation. And so nowadays, uh, that one's really kind of cool. Get that one in the freezer, get it ice cold, and it's served almost in straight shots like Aquavit or vodka, and it gets a little syrupy and kind of really cool. Best glass of it I've ever had was I had one infused with hop shoots at Tahamelhof in Watu in Belgium after finishing a course of rabbit. Fantastic. Another one that's also rare but starting to come back is a gin called Old Tom. Uh, you can find that mostly from a distillery called Heyman's, and it's the halfway point between Geneva and what we now know today as London Dry Gin. It's slightly sweet but also very herbal. London Dry Gin. That is the gin that rules the world, and it became possible when column stills actually came into play, and that's a little bit you know later in like the 1800s, but they're drier. So you think your beef eaters, your tankerays, and closely related to that is a style that's only produced in Plymouth, England. That's oddly enough called Plymouth Gin, and that's actually, to my mind, that is slightly sweeter than the London Dry Gin, but it also has a really incredibly strong woodiness. And then lastly, the place where a lot of gin makers are going 
is what's called modern new wave gin. No, it's not Thomas Dolby or the, the Thompson twins. It's modern new wave gin and it's newer flavors developed for sort of the modern preference towards less strong juniper character. And so these gins have a de-emphasized level of juniper. It's still in there. It should still be a good base note. But now these are where a lot of these other flavors come in, like roses and cucumbers and lavender. And so the classics on these are, say, Hendrix, for instance, which is now commonly available. Uh, St. George's Terroir is famous for using a lot of sage, for instance. Now, this is where a lot of uh, sort of current uh, gin playing is happening. I highly encourage you to play around and get some of these. They're wonderful. They make really great martinis. Now, other gin terms to know. Gunpowder gin is a uh, gin infused with gunpowder tea. You'll see gin being made with a lot of different things, including milk. Uh, Navy strength. Navy strength is a term for 114 overproof gin. So that means it's strong enough to still like gunpowder on boarded naval ship. Uh, in theory, it belongs to the category of like, oh, that's what they shipped away on the British Navy. And then also finally, there's slow gin, which is traditionally it was gin infused with slow berries. These days, it's more of a liqueur. So don't get it confused with proper gin. Uh, but it is still actually used in a couple of cocktails. Now, speaking of cocktails, here are a couple of my favorite gin cocktails that I think everybody needs to know and everybody needs to have at least once. Uh, the Martini, a.k.a. the Martinez. Originally, it was Old Tom Gin and Sweet Vermouth, which was what was called the Martinez. Nowadays, the modern version uses drier and drier gins like London Dry Gin and Dry Vermouth. I particularly like to blend actually a new wave gin like Hendrix with something like uh, a Plymouth or London dry to kind of get somewhere in between the two. And I like to use a really nice vermouth like Dolan dry. Uh, I prefer to stir and then double strain because I do not like the level of dilution that you get from shaking nor the ice chips. The other classic gin cocktail that you need to know is the Negroni originally called the Americano, which was a, a drink of sweet vermouth Campari, which is a nice bitter, a little bit of orange bitters and soda water. And then supposedly a guy who is the Comotet de Negroni asked for his soda water to be replaced with gin. And the classic cocktail was born, serve it over a big ice cube after stirring and express a little orange peel into there for a wonderful fall and winter drink. And then you've heard us talk about on the main show before the Pigu Club. Go look that one up. Uh, thanks to Van Havig from Gigantic. I'm now a huge fan of that. It's a great cocktail. There are other ones out there. Obviously, the gin and tonic. You got to get good tonic water. I like either uh, one of the Fever Tree waters as a base or Jack Rudy's syrup that you mix with some club soda or Antonic syrup that you also mix with club soda. I prefer mine with both lime and bitters. A lot of people nowadays only seem to like lime in theirs. I like the bitters because I think it particularly adds a, an extra note to, to the gin. And for me, I like to use Scrappy's Classic Bitters. And then my celebration cocktail is, well, it's one of my favorites. It's called the French 75. There is a very classic gin cocktail called the Tom Collins, which is essentially gin, a little bit of sugar syrup, a little bit of lemon juice, and some sparkling soda water. Stir that together in a nice tall glass. Boom. Bob's your uncle. You got a drink. Well, the French 75 is a Tom Collins, but instead of soda water, substitute in champagne. And it's called a French 75 because it supposedly has the same level of kick as a World One Error 75 millimeter French field gun. But <laughs> That's great. Uh, it's a perfect New Year's Eve cocktail if, you, uh, if you're bored of champagne. So there you guys go. What's going to be your poison today, Denny? You know, Drew, I'll take whatever you hand me because they all sound great. There we go. All right. Well, now I can think gin the next time I drink gin. There you go. And that might be in the next five minutes. We'll see. <laughs> uh, 
Well, yeah, it might. You just never know, do you? Never know. I might always be five minutes away from a gin and tonic. Really? So, well, I, I hope that everybody enjoyed that that revisit. Like I said, the world of craft gin right now is very interesting. So get your nose out there. Give things a sniff. Yeah, that's right. There are some really, really cool craft gins out there that are just delicious. And to go with them, there's some really good craft tonics, too. So keep your eyes open for those. Absolutely. All right. That's enough time, you Mr. Belgian freak. Let's get out of here. Yep, yep. Time for us to get out of here. Well, I guess I'm already out of here. But uh, it's time to sign off for this time around. So thank you all for listening to Experimental Brewing. You can catch all of our latest adventures and writings by going to our website, experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget, you can follow us on Twitter, where we're at EXP Brewing. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. Drew hangs out on the Homebrewing subreddit and the Slack Homebrew channel. I'm on a lot of different forums, including the AHA discussion forum. And I do a lot of talking about beer on Facebook also. If you want to uh, get in touch and ask us a question or suggest topics, recipes, experiments, or even just rant and rave, and believe me, a lot of people do that, you can always email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. Or if you want to get a hold of each one of us individually, I'm Denny at experimentalbrew.com, and he's Drew at experimentalbrew.com. And, of course, you can leave us a voicemail or a text at 626-765-1AL. Please leave your name also. So until next time, when I'll actually be back here, remember to always brew experimentally. Or brew wacky. And we'll see you on the next episode of Experimental Brewing. (laughs) 